Good morning, First Baptist Church of Greg Gables. Hope you all had wonderful weeks. I uh, hope you're enjoying the Christmas season. I hope you have your Bibles out in front of you and you're ready to dive into God's Word uh, this morning. I wanted to start uh, by saying something in love. I know many of you probably have heard or even maybe think that what we're doing by having church service indoors in the midst of pandemic is dangerous, that we are uh, in danger. But I wanted to actually talk to you about a different kind of danger that every one of us are facing. Did you know uh, that you are in danger? You, right now, sitting there listening to this sermon, are in danger. There is a danger lurking in many of our lives, a danger that threatens to overtake us, a danger that even threatens to bring us to ruin. This danger is not something that can be seen, but make no mistake about it, just because it's invisible makes it no less deadly. This danger manifests itself in different ways, making it very difficult to root out of our lives. For some, it takes the form of boredom with the things of Christianity. For some of us, we have grown weary of the seemingly repetitive nature of the Christian life. And so we're tired of going to church. We're tired of praying, tired of reading the Bible, tired of hearing the Bible preached. We want something new, something fresh, something to spark our interest, something exciting. But for some of us, this danger can take a completely different form. Some of us flat out have grown tired of grace. We want a serious Christianity because we're a serious Christian. And so what we've done is we've created our very own personal holiness code, a standard to live up to, a standard by which we think we're making ourselves acceptable to God. Still, for some of us, once having believed in the gospel, we have now begun to wrestle with putting our hope in things like our work, our family, our health, or our wealth. So what is this pervasive, shape-shifting danger that is irking in every one of our lives? Well, the danger is simply this. After once having grasped and cherished our glorious salvation, we have forgotten how amazing our salvation was and is. And in forgetting, we have begun to put our hope and fulfillment in things that will never, ever deliver. And so the question we have to ask this morning is, does the Bible have anything to say about this danger? Does the Bible provide for us a gift of instruction to help protect us this Christmas season from this danger? Well, in fact, our text that we'll be studying this morning not only gives us a gift of instruction for this danger, but it also gives us the antidote to help protect us from this danger in this Christmas season. So uh, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. But before we read that together, I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of 1 Timothy, a little bit of context so we can understand the audience, the author, and the purpose uh, before we dive into this book. And so this first letter to Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul to his faithful disciple, Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of the church of Ephesus, which is located in the modern-day province of Ismir uh, in the western coast of Turkey. Timothy, like you and I, was in danger. 
Uh, much like the United States, Ephesus in the first century was a pluralistic society. There was no shortage of philosophical or religious attacks on Christianity. There was no shortage of competing ideas of what constituted the quote-unquote good life. Uh, and so the fact that Timothy lived and pastored in a setting like this put him in danger. He and other Christians in Ephesus were constantly in danger of wandering away from from the faith to look for hope in things that would not save. So what would the Apostle Paul say to his faithful son Timothy so that he would not succumb to the danger of turning away from the gospel? And what would the Apostle Paul say to you and I so that we would not abandon our first hope? Well, let's read now 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17 and see exactly what he has to say. The Apostle Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he encountered me faithful, putting me into ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief." However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word now. Father, we do thank you for this, your word. We know that we do not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so would you speak to us, your people today, through your word? May we never forget the amazing salvation you have provided for us in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Father, may we never wander away from the gospel. May we cling to it as our only hope, especially now during the Christmas season, as we recognize that, Father, you came into the world to save sinners. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for that gospel that Jesus brings. Open our eyes, our hearts, and our ears to it this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well. Through Paul's autobiographical account here, he is telling us that since we are in danger of wandering away, we must remember our glorious salvation. That's kind of the main idea of what we want to say here this morning. Since we are in danger of wandering away, we must remember our glorious salvation salvation. And about that glorious salvation that we've received in Christ, I want to point our attention to two particular things in this text that I think will warm your hearts this Christmas season toward the goodness and kindness of our God who sent his son to save sinners. And so first, since we are in danger of wandering away from the gospel, we must remember Jesus's amazing mercy and grace. We must remember Jesus's amazing mercy and grace. That's Paul's emphasis in verses 12 through 14 of our text. In verse 12, Paul begins by recalling his own salvation and call to ministry. He thanks Jesus for judging him faithful and appointing him to serve in this ministry. 
Now, by the way, when Paul says he was counted faithful, he's not saying that Jesus looked down from heaven and saw something in Paul that made Paul worthy of receiving or obtaining this gift of salvation. That would be to misread it because Paul is about to give us a laundry list of reasons why he should never have been chosen. In fact, Paul's undeserving receipt of Jesus' mercy is what he begins to hone in on in verse 12. That's kind of our first subheading here, our subpoint uh, in, in this point of remembering Jesus' amazing mercy and grace, is that Paul was a recipient. Paul received undeserved mercy. He was a recipient of undeserved mercy. Of course, when we talk about mercy, what we're referring to is God's kindness and compassion to do for a person what they neither deserve or are capable of doing themselves. Paul here is completely undeserving, and he underscores that at the beginning of verse 13. Look at that with me, where he highlights who he used to be. He was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, what Paul is referring to here is the fact that before he was famous for being the Apostle Paul, he was famous for a very different reason. He was famous for persecuting, attacking, and blaspheming Christians and their God. He did everything in his power to trash the name of Jesus. He traveled far and wide from city to city with the sole purpose of arresting, beating, and imprisoning Christians. This is captured for us so well at the end of Acts 7 and beginning of Acts 8, which is actually our scripture reading for this morning's uh, passage, where we understand that Paul is portrayed as overseeing and even giving approval to the stoning of Stephen, one of Jesus's earliest followers. This was a man who hated Jesus Christ, and yet to this man, Jesus showed undeserved mercy. Not only was Paul a recipient, though, of undeserved mercy, Paul was also a recipient of overflowing grace. Paul received overflowing grace. Notice at the end of verse 13, the beginning of verse 14, he says this. He says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. Christ's saving work as a gift to Paul was exceedingly abundant. It overflowed to Paul. Uh, it superabounded to Paul. It was not in any way of short supply. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, a couple weeks ago, I remember I was getting up and I was getting ready uh, for work. And as I like to do before I leave the house, I was uh, getting ready to brush my teeth. I hope you're familiar with that. Uh, if not, then we're not worried about your droplets anymore. We're worried about your stanky breath, right? So keep six feet away from us for that reason. In fact, go ahead and put a mask on and then you'll have to live what the rest of us have been living with for so long. No, I'm kidding. That's mean. Uh, so I was getting ready to brush my teeth as I hope you do as well. And I had my toothbrush and toothpaste out, but I had an issue. Uh, the toothpaste tube was empty. And so what did I do? I did what any normal, sane human being does in that circumstance. I began to twist and to turn and to roll and fold and push inch by inch that tube so I could just squeeze one last drop of toothpaste onto my toothbrush so I could brush my teeth. Friends, did you know that receiving mercy and grace from Jesus is not like that at all? 
It is not hard for you, friends. It overflows to you. It is exceedingly abundant for all who come to him. You don't have to come to Jesus and say, Lord, just squeeze it out. Just give me one little last drop. No, it flows forth from Jesus. Your breaking waves of sin are consumed by the tidal wave of his grace and mercy. It is a vast ocean and we are little fish. His mercy and grace, friends, they never run out. And so do my, to my Christian brothers and sisters who are listening and hearing this, do you remember who you were before the Lord saved you? Can I just encourage you to take some time to remember who you were before the Lord showed you undeserved mercy and overflowing grace, not for the purpose of fondly reminiscing on your sins and thinking about how great it was back then, because it wasn't great, but for the purpose of bringing those sins into the light of Jesus's mercy and grace to begin to see them as they actually are. See, we should recognize that prior to being shown mercy and grace by Jesus and being saved, Paul would have looked at his actions and perceived them as a good thing. He was doing in his mind what he should have done as a Jew to a persecuting a people who were blaspheming the name of God in his sight. So he understood what he was doing to really be the right thing. But after being shown mercy and grace, he's able to see who it is he actually was. A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent, violent opponent. Friend, who were you before the Lord saved you? See, it's in the midst of reflecting upon God's power to fundamentally change you as a person that you will grow to understand the undeserved mercy and exceedingly abundant grace from Christ to you, that that is the only thing that can change your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And so what was Paul's response to undeserved mercy and overflowing thanks? Paul's response was thankfulness. He thanked God for his undeserved mercy and his overflowing grace. And friends, you and I too, we really should thank him. This is what Paul does. Look at how the section begins in verse 12 here. Again, he says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Literally, Paul says, thankfulness I have. Paul is thankful to Jesus because of the mercy and grace he's shown. It was life-changing. Notice again what he says in verse 13. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. As in, I used to be those things, but I'm not those things anymore because I've been shown undeserved mercy and overflowing grace. Now all I want to do is give thanks to God for what he's given to me. Friends, did you know that thankfulness is the natural response to those who have received mercy and grace from God? Can I ask you a couple questions? Would you characterize your interactions to God as being marked by thankfulness? How often do you convey gratitude for what the Lord has done for you? Let me tell you, to the degree and frequency you offer an expression, a gift of thanks to God, shows you and will tell you how well you really understand the mercy and grace you've received. How often you express gratitude and thanksgiving to God will tell you whether or not you really understand what you've received in his mercy and grace. Uh, many years ago, as the story is told, there was a devout God-fearing king. This devout God-fearing king, he was disturbed by the gratitude of the members of his royal court. So 
this devout, God-fearing king, he prepared a very large banquet for them. And when the king and his royal guests, they were seated by arrangement, the king had a beggar shuffled into the hall. This beggar sat down at the king's table and he began to gorge himself with food. Then, without saying a word, this beggar got up and left. The members, of course, of the royal court, they were furious. How could this beggar, having eaten at the table of the king, feasting on all his goods, leave without ever even saying thank you to the king? So the king replied to the members of his royal court, that beggar has only done once to me what each of you does to me three times a day. Never, he said, have you ever, after eating at my table, given me one word of thanks. You walk away without recognizing who it is that has given you this gift and expressing a thank you to him. Friends, a story like this captures and makes clear how wrong it is for people who have been given so much to give thanks so little. And friends, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to recognize that every single day you get to feast at the table of the Lord's mercy and grace. Every single day. Let's be sure to thank God in between continuous helpings of his mercy and grace. Because without that mercy and grace, we would have no hope of ever being able to change ourselves. Notice how the Apostle Paul attributes everything that happens to him. He attributes it to Jesus. It was Jesus who enabled me. It was Jesus who counted me faithful. It was Jesus who put me in ministry. It was Jesus who showed me undeserved mercy. It was Jesus who gave me overflowing grace. The change of heart that Paul experienced was an act of God. In fact, some people say that next to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the conversion of the apostle Paul is some of the greatest evidence we have of the truth claims of Christianity, that God miraculously changes hearts. And when you come to understand that the only thing that can change your heart is an act of God, then you will begin to have confidence in the fact that there is no one on planet Earth who is too hardened for God to change, for the mercy and grace of Christ to change their hearts. Because God's greater than the hearts of mankind. He can change hearts whenever, wherever, and however he desires through his word. That's the point, by the way, of Paul's conversion story. You're supposed to look at it and say, well, if God can change that man, then God can change anyone. He can save anyone, which means he can save my grandparents. He can save my parents. He can save my spouse, my siblings, my children, my grandchildren. Who are the black sheep in your family, friends? God God can save them. His family is full of black sheep. So do not give up praying or sharing the gospel with the unlikely. God's mercy and grace will change them whenever he decides to change them. Friends, uh, if you want to protect yourself from wandering away from the truth of Christianity, you must remember Jesus' amazing mercy and grace. But you also must remember something else. Secondly, you must remember Jesus' long-suffering. If you want to protect yourself from wandering away from the danger of abandoning the Christian faith and looking for hope in things that will never fulfill, you must remember Jesus' long-suffering. That's the second thing I want us to remember this morning. That's Paul's emphasis in verses 16 and 17. Look with me now at verse 16 and see what he says. He says, However, for this reason I obtain mercy. 
that in me Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering. Jesus' display of amazing mercy to Paul had a purpose, to demonstrate Jesus' long-suffering. His long-suffering refers to the fullness of the extent of his patience with Paul. Uh, It's not that just this kind of pulled back, reserved calm, though I presume that Jesus is certainly not threatened by our actions against him, but it connotes patience, forbearing. It refers to the quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation that one does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish as would be deserved when provoked. Uh, This is the point. Paul, in his former life, hated Jesus Christ. He cursed his name. He attacked Christians. He killed followers of Christ. And Jesus, in the face of that type of provocation, was long-suffering with Paul. He was patient. Why would he do that? Well, look back with me at verse 16 again. Jesus was making Paul a prototype. That's what it says there in verse 16. Why would Jesus be long-suffering with Paul? He was making Paul a prototype, a pattern But friends, it's not the kind of pattern that you and I are meant to follow by our own energy. It's what the word in this context means. The word pattern refers to Paul being a prototype, an example, an illustration. Paul's violent attacks on Christians and his hatred of Jesus that was met by Jesus pouring out mercy on him is supposed to have us saying, my goodness, How long-suffering is this Jesus? That's what we're supposed to do in response to that. If anybody deserved the judgment of God, it was Paul. Paul's salvation is a supreme demonstration of of the preeminence of God's long-suffering. And the reason he was long-suffering with Paul is the same reason he's long-suffering with us who are sitting here this morning. It's, in fact, so that whoever is listening to this, whoever is hearing this this morning, it's proof to you that Jesus is long-suffering. So considering how Paul's demonstration is a demonstration of Jesus' long-suffering, it reminds me of a story of a man by the name of John Selwyn. Selwyn was an Anglican priest, uh, uh, sorry, Anglican priest who traveled to Melanesia in the South Pacific as a missionary uh, in 1873. Uh, during his time there as a missionary, Selwyn was regularly harassed by a young boy from one of the towns where he was sharing the gospel. On one particular day, because of the harassment he was facing from this young boy, Selwyn sharply rebuked him. The the boy then flew into a rage. He began to ball up his fist and just started punching Selwyn as hard as he could. A boy punching a grown man who is fully capable of defending himself. But Selwyn, rather than retaliating himself, turned quietly and walked away. The boy's behavior, though, continued to worsen. He became a regular and defiant opponent of Selwyn in his gospel until Selwyn returned to England due to illness. But many years later, on that same island that Selwyn ministered, another missionary came and encountered a man. Uh, This man was nearing the end of his life. He had given his life to Christ and he had desired to be baptized. And around that area, specifically on that island, but probably in the areas around, when someone was baptized, they would take the practice of changing their name to demonstrate the change that happened uh, in their life. 
And so when this man was asked what name he would like to take after his baptism, he told the missionary, I want my new name to be John Selwyn because he showed me what Christ was like the day I struck him. This is the kind of patience, by the way, that Jesus shows to people who provoke him day after day. In fact, to my non-Christian friends that may be hearing and listening to this, I want you to see in how just a small way Selwyn's long-suffering is an example or model of Jesus' long-suffering towards you. Uh, your sins of selfishness, anger, arrogance, self-righteousness, bitterness, lying, stealing, cheating, they're all actually attacks on him. The Bible is clear and however much we harm one another, we do things that aren't good. We are ultimately doing those as attacks on his person. They are affronts on his reign and his rule as king. But non-Christians, listen, Jesus is long-suffering with you. <laughs> The reason he's long-suffering with you is so that you would recognize how you've sinned against him. He would want you to turn from your sin and trust him. Like that man that attacked John Selwyn who later came to faith because Selwyn didn't immediately respond in anger when he struck. Though you have sinned against God, he has not immediately shown you his wrath in order to show you his long-suffering. The same long-suffering he showed the Apostle Paul. I don't want you to make this mistake when you hear the testimony about the Apostle Paul, though. You might be tempted to say, well, yeah, well, Paul was a really, really bad guy. I'm not that bad. I don't need that kind of help. Friends, if you're tempted to respond that way, I want you to notice why Paul said he attacked the Christians that he attacked. Look back with me at verse 13. He says, the reason that he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man was because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Unbelief undergirded Paul's opposition to God. Unbelief undergirded his opposition to God. And according to the Bible, after our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against him and were separated from his presence, all people who have ever been born into the world have been born into this state of unbelief. We are by nature children of wrath because of that unbelief. And out of that unbelief, what comes out of it are sins against God. Conscious, willing choices to rebel against God and to not submit to his authority. But praise God, there's good news. God in Christ continues to be long-suffering with us. God in Christ continues to be long-suffering with us. Look at verse 15. Look with me to verse 15. To what God has done to those who are undeserving. He sent his son, Christ Jesus, into the world. And why did he send him into the world? To save sinners. To save those who would attack him. Far better than a chubby man coming down a chimney with a bag of gifts is a gift of a baby lying in a manger. Because you don't need a new iPhone, friend. You need mercy and long-suffering from God. Just think about what it is that you actually need this Christmas season. He says in verse 15, this is a faithful saying. This is true. Jesus really did come born of a virgin. 
He came and became a man who lived a perfect life, a life you and I should have lived, but a life that none of us have lived. And he was crucified on the cross, bearing the punishment that all of us who are undeserving deserve, so that mercy and long-suffering of God would overflow to all who turn from their sins and trust in him. And then he rose three days later, proclaiming his victory over sin, death, and hell. The faithful saying is worthy of all acceptance. That doesn't mean, by the way, yeah, I believe it actually happened. To be worthy of full acceptance means that you turn from your sin and embrace what Jesus has done for you. You commit to following him, to saying, yes, Lord, I will receive your undeserved mercy and your exceedingly abundant grace. I'm amazed that you're long-suffering with me because I've lived life in rebellion against you. That is what it means to have this message to be fully received and accepted. Friends, if you are listening to this, you are not a Christian and you are hearing this, our prayer is that you would turn to Jesus Christ today. He is perfectly long-suffering. He is an all-sufficient Savior. He's the only one that can save you. And for my Christian brothers and sisters... I just simply want you to recognize that the long-suffering Jesus had toward Paul is the same long-suffering he has towards you today. His long-suffering towards you was not a one-time thing he showed you when you got saved. But it continues even today. You remember, did you see, did you notice how Paul describes him in this passage? I'm not talking about when he describes who he used to be, by the way. It's not what he's describing. I'm talking about who he still says he is in verse 15. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Notice he doesn't say I was chief, but then I received mercy and grace and became this super holy apostle. He says I am chief because he knows how desperately he still needs God's long suffering and he knows that he still has it. Through Paul, Jesus is demonstrating to you today, if you follow Jesus, there is no sin in your life so great that he would reject you. He will not abandon you because you are a sinner. He came to save sinners. So if you've repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, his long suffering with you is perfect. Be of good cheer. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you and is long suffering with you perfectly. And because of his long suffering towards us, friends, we should want nothing more than to show that long suffering towards one another. We should desire to show long-suffering towards one another. That is how it works out practically in our lives. I've just noticed something in my own life. Over the past few months, I've been so saddened of how easily I lose patience with those who are closest to me. Uh, whether it's my wife, my kids, friends, coworkers, I so easily lose my patience over seemingly the most trivial of matters. Whether it's unwanted intrusions of my time or an ill-timed comment or even just a simple mistake they've made, I'm saddened because when I compare the things that are done to me that I'm not long-suffering over with the things that I have done to the Lord and yet he's still long-suffering to me, I can't believe how little I actually grasp what he's done for me. Uh, how are you doing with forbearing with the sins of others? Uh, would others describe you as patient? How well do you think you grasp the long-suffering that Christ has toward you? See, the lack of long-suffering you show will tell others, again, just how well you understand the long-suffering of the Lord with you. 
But here is what's the amazing thing, friends. As we stumble to show long-suffering toward one another, he still remains long-suffering toward us. Friends, how else should we respond to this long-suffering other than just praise? And that's what Paul does. Uh, Long-suffering leads Paul into spontaneous praise. Now, Jesus' long-suffering, it leads Paul into spontaneous praise. Look at verse 17. You need to understand that in the flow of this passage, this just comes out of the Apostle Paul. It springs forth. It erupts out of him what he says here in verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is saying, I can't believe, Lord, what it is that you've done for me. My goodness, you're so worthy of praise. And he just can't help but to offer it to the Lord. He can't help but to burst out into spontaneous praise after reflecting on these glorious truths. Who does he praise? He praises the king eternal. Remember, God is a a king whose reign never ends. He is immortal. God never dies. He has life in himself, which means his mercy, grace, and long-suffering are always available to you. If you are not a Christian and you are here listening to this, I just want to say another word to you. Uh, Though God is immortal, you are not. He has given us this life only to turn to him and trust in him for what he's done for us in his son, Jesus. But I also want you to be assured of this. There is nobody on earth whose sin is so great that they cannot be saved by God. You are not too far gone, and he delights to show undeserved mercy and exceedingly abundant and long-suffering and grace to all of those who repent of their sins and turn to him by faith, because he delights to glorify just how great he actually is. And so you should think really hard about turning to Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. And not only, though, is he immortal, but he's invisible, wise to him, be glory and honor forever and ever. Notice here, tucked inside Paul's praise, there's a warning and an instruction to Timothy and to us, to all who are in danger from wandering away from the faith in the search of other false gospels. Our God, who shows great mercy, exceedingly abundant grace, and long-suffering, is God alone. He says he is the only God Friends, there's there's no one else who can provide what we need most. There is no one else who can accomplish what he accomplished. When this invisible God sent his only beloved son to become visible, taking on himself mortal flesh in a manger 2,000 years ago as we celebrate this season, when the Lord Jesus Christ was born as a helpless babe, that helpless babe would grow into a man who would carry his people's sins to the cross. And in his crucifixion, and death, the streams of God's undeserved mercy, his exceedingly abundant, overflowing grace, and his long-suffering were open to a people so desperately in need. So friends, my prayer is as you celebrate this season of the Lord's birth, I want you to remember Jesus' amazing mercy and grace. Remember his long-suffering. Friends, do not forget our glorious salvation. I know we say this all the time here, remember the gospel, think on the gospel. Friends, really, it should be what marks our lives as Christians, is we are constantly, constantly sharing the gospel with ourselves because we are, in fact, danger, in danger of forgetting this gospel. And you think, how in the world could we possibly forget it? Friends, we do it all the time. Look at the things we've distracted ourselves with. 
so that we don't have to think about how, how great we really have it in Christ. How joyous this salvation is, how wonderful it is, what it is that we actually deserve and what it is that we actually get. Friends, we forget it often. So we must always come back to God and his word and remember our glorious salvation so that we will not wander away. Praise God for his amazing, his amazing mercy, his overflowing grace, and his long-suffering to us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your name um, Father, in the name of our Savior, Redeemer, our friend, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, we come in his name to give you praise and to give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, because we are undeserving of your mercy, yet you have seen fit to show it to us. Thank you for causing your grace to be overflowing to us, exceedingly abundant to us. Help us to appreciate and behold that grace. Thank you, Father, for the long-suffering you show us in Jesus. Help us, Father. We desire that these truths would not take root, or that these truths would take root in our hearts and we would not drift away. We would not wander away from the glorious salvation. We pray that your spirit would use these truths to mold us more and more into the image of your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. The application is very, or the invitation is very clear for those of us who are Christians. It's simply, again, as we talked about last week, especially in the Christmas season, do not be distracted from the glorious gifts of God's mercy, grace, and long suffering. Focus on them. Let it be central to your Christmas. And for those who are not uh, Christians hearing this, friends, see uh, the beauty of God's mercy, grace, and long suffering with you. Every breath you take is a, is a reminder of Jesus' long suffering. Uh, and so, friends, the, the call is that today would be the day you'd re repent and turn from your sins and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Um, I'd love to talk with you more about that. If you would love to reach out to me, um, you can find out how to do that on our website. Um, send me an email. We'd love to, to sit down and talk with you and, and tell you just how you can experience the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ today. I love you, church family. I hope you, again, have a wonderful, restful, uh, joyous celebration um, this week and the next and uh, God bless you.